Well, good morning, Southview. How are we? All right. Glad to have you with us here today. If you're a guest with us, welcome to you. My name is Brad. I'm the pastor here at Southview, and it's great to have you worshiping with us here this morning. I want to read some scripture to us to begin our time together. Psalm 21, verse 13. It says, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. As we spend just a moment here uh, worshiping together in song, I want to encourage you. What this scripture tells us is the reason that we sing is not because we're playing your favorite jam. Right? Oh, I love this song, so I'm going to sing. The reason we sing is as a result, as a response to who God is. We sing because of who God is and his great authority and power that he brings into our life. So I want to encourage you as we sing here this morning, as we, as we lift our voices to the Lord in praise, don't just sing because you like the song or not sing because you don't care for the song. I want you to listen to the words. I want you to allow your heart to connect with the heart of God and you proclaim these words in song as a response to who God is and how great and powerful he is in your life. So I want to ask you to bow your heads for me. I want to pray for us to begin our time here together. Lord, I just thank you. I thank you, God, that this is true, that you are exalted, you are strong, you are powerful, you are glorious, you are amazing, you are holy, you are other. There's no circumstance or situation in our life that you are not perfectly sovereign over. We thank you, God, that we trust you in all things. We lean into you in all things. We come to you in prayer in all things. There's nothing that touches our life that we cannot take to you. If it's big enough for us to worry about, then it's big enough for us to pray about. So I thank you, God, that there's nothing big or small we can't come to you about. And I thank you, God, that we sing praises here this morning because of who you are, how glorious and amazing and beautiful you are. So I pray, God, that you would empower us as we sing to glorify your name. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's worship the Lord. All right, good morning, church. Let's sing and let's celebrate. Come on.
angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side. Splendor of a king, clothed in majesty, and all the earth rejoices, all the earth rejoices. He 
Have a seat. Well, as we transition from a time of singing praises to the Lord to lifting our hearts in prayer to God, I want to guide us this morning. Um, so we try to use the 
Lord's Prayer, the Sermon on the Mount, as a guide for us as we pray together. And, and so we kind of take a little section of that every week and, and pray through that. And I want to focus just for a couple of minutes this morning on verse 12. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, that Lord's Prayer. Jesus says in his prayer, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And, and I want to stop for a second and, and have this sink into our hearts. A massive, a massive part of your personal prayer life being effective is you asking for forgiveness for the people you have offended and you forgiving those who have offended you. It's so significant when Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he spends a whole section on it. Right there. There are only five sections in the whole thing that he's teaching us to pray. One of those is he takes a whole section in your prayer life. Just make sure you understand the significance of forgiving. And so I want us to do that here this morning. Take just a minute and just kind of stop and meditate on that and pray towards that end. Uh, Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to everyone, tenderhearted, Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Just like you have been forgiven by Christ, that's how you are to forgive. So this morning, uh, I want to let you spend a little time praying. And I want to give you just three questions to think through as you pray, okay? Uh, question number one, is there anyone I have offended but have not asked forgiveness? Is there anyone that you are aware of that you have done something against? You have sinned against them, offended them, bothered them in some way, shape, or form, and you have not asked for their forgiveness. Maybe this is a family member, maybe this is a friend, coworker, church member, and you haven't sought them for forgiveness. The second question I want you to consider. Has anyone offended me and I still harbor unforgiveness? Is there anyone that's offended you, sinned against you, bothered you, harassed you in whatever way, shape, or form? Whether they realize it or not, whether they've asked for forgiveness or not, does not matter. You forgiving them has zero to do with them. And I know that needs to be a whole sermon. But you forgiving them has literally nothing to do with them, their asking for forgiveness, or them even thinking they did anything wrong. It doesn't matter. Ephesians 4.32 is clear here. There's no parentheses, there's no footnote, and your name is not at the bottom going, never mind. Forgive. Is there anyone, anyone you have not forgiven? Have I gossiped or spoken negatively about anyone behind their back? Remember that 432 of Ephesians, be kind to everyone. Is there anyone you spoke of negatively about, ill about, gossiped about behind their back? Vague Facebook posts that you don't name names. That's a sin. And God is calling you to repent of that sin. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for me. Um, 
And this is just you and the Lord, okay? This is just you and God. He knows the real answers to these questions in your heart. We don't have to, we don't have to search that out for you. God knows, and, and I believe God's going to show you. So just take a few minutes here with the Lord and just, just seek the Lord on this. Is there anyone that you have offended or sinned against, but you've not asked them for forgiveness? Today, confess that to the Lord and then commit in your heart that you will. Has anyone that sinned against you, whether they've asked for forgiveness or not today, through faith, forgive them? And is there anyone that you've spoken negatively about, ill about, gossiped about, shared a prayer request? That's sin. That's just sin. Confess that today. So I'm going to leave you, just you and the Lord for a couple of minutes. Take that time and sit before Him. I know calling us to pray over something like this today probably just opens up a can of worms more than resolves anything in anyone's heart. So I pray, God, in the least right now today, you'll just start stirring in us. In the least today, I think a great answer to prayer would be that you start stirring in our hearts so that we have to stop ignoring these things like they're not there and not sin. So I pray, God, in the least that. Even if something doesn't get definitively resolved in someone's heart right now in these couple of minutes. At least, God, I pray that you would begin stirring in their heart to know that they can't just ignore that anymore. Jesus, you clearly said forgiveness, given and received, is a massive part of our prayer life. So I pray, God, we'll see it as that and pursue it as that. I pray, God, we will not be content and okay with saying and doing offensive and rude and sinful things towards people and not asking their forgiveness. We're not going to be okay with having people do things towards us and we harbor that unforgiveness and bitterness. We're not going to be okay any longer with saying rude things, gossiping, sharing our hearts with people that we got no business sharing our heart with. I pray, God, that you would, in the least today, start convicting us and stirring in our hearts to see that stuff isn't okay. You're not all right with that. And you are calling us to confess and repent of that, wash free and clear of that, and walk completely separate from it. Do this in us, God. Stir this up in us. We need this. We desire this. And I pray, God, by your grace, you're doing we ask that you will, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, hey, if you've got a Bible, let's find Exodus chapter 1, all right, Exodus chapter 1. While you're turning there, I will say one quick uh, PSA. Uh, so our, our military ministry 
as you go out this door and to the left, we have a little table set up out there uh, for a military ministry. Whether you're active duty, veteran, uh, the spouse of someone who's active duty or veteran, whatever the case may be, um, we've got this ministry for you. And so we, uh, you're welcome to go out there after the service. We'll have some folk out there uh, at the table. They can talk with you, answer questions, that sort of thing. Uh, so if that is you, uh, we'd love for you to get connected with that ministry so we can uh, have uh, the best way possible to love you, encourage you. We think it's a blessing and a gift from God that we uh, uh, live and minister here in a military town. We think that is a good thing, uh, and so we want to serve you well for the glory of God. So if you go out and check that out uh, after the service, uh, that'd be fantastic. All right, so... Uh, we're in a series we're calling The Story, and the, the big idea of this series is we're trying to see the overarching story of the Bible uh, from Genesis to Revelation, seeing that it's one big idea, one big story, God is the hero, and how is God doing this? And so I've told you kind of our, our, uh, our big takeaway that I want you to get throughout this series is that the Bible is not a roadmap for your life. The Bible is a neon sign pointing to Jesus, and as you trust in Him, He changes your life. And so what we mean by that is a lot of times people come to the Bible like a medicine cabinet, right? Um, I need peace, so I go find a verse about peace. I need faith, so I go find a verse about faith. I need hope or encouragement or, or whatever the case, so I go find a verse about that, and I sort of take that. And, and that's not necessarily bad. The Bible does speak to that. In fact, the Bible is the one place you want to go for all of those things. That's not bad. In fact, if you would come to me for counsel, very quickly into the conversation, that one of the questions I'm going to ask you is, well, what does the Bible say about that? Right? That's, it's obviously our source of truth and life and hope, and that's where we go for all of that. But what I want to see in the series is, the only way that those verses, those truths about those things are going to really apply and make root and bring fruit out in your life is if you understand how they fit into the big overarching story. So... As we've gone through this, what we've seen is ultimately the Bible is a story about God, right? It starts in Genesis 1-1 with God by himself alone in authority and power and glory and honor. And then out of an overflow of just his love and glory and creativity, he starts making stuff, right? And as he creates the universe and everything that exists is created by him. In the process of that, he creates Adam and Eve for them to have a perfect relationship with him, with one another, with the rest of creation. But then we get Genesis 3. We meet the, the villain in the story, Satan. He tempts Adam and Eve to rebel against God. They do that. And then all of humanity, including us, spirals down in to sin. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. But God has a plan. He says in that Genesis 3 account that a son is going to come, and this son is going to be different than every other son. This is going to be a victorious warrior king son that's going to crush Satan and end the curse. And we saw that a little bit last week, that story beginning. We saw that God called this man Abraham. He is old. He's an idol worshiper. He doesn't have any kids. But God calls him and says, I want you to follow me, serve me. I'm making a covenant with you. And you're going to have a kid in your old age. And indeed, he and Sarah do. And that's kind of the rest of the book of Genesis is following Abraham and his family tree. Right? So Abraham and Sarah have a son. His name is Isaac. Isaac has two kids, Jacob and Esau. One of his sons, Jacob, has 12 sons. They eventually will make up the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those boys is a kid named Joseph. Now, Joseph 
The hand of God was on him, but he was, a, he was a little brother, so he liked to stick it to his older brothers. They didn't like that. So for you, like if your little brother's messing with you, like you stick his head in the toilet, they opted to sell him into slavery. So they sell him into slavery down in Egypt. However, God's hand is on him. And even though his brothers meant it for evil, God intended it for good. God raised Joseph from a slave to being the second most powerful human on earth. Second in line only to Pharaoh there in Egypt. And then God brings a famine. And through this position that Joseph is placed in, he is allowed to save his family from this famine, he eventually brings his dad and his brothers and all of the family down to Egypt with him. Pharaoh gives them jobs. Life is good. Everything seems to be going well. This family that God has chosen to bring the Savior through, it's working, right? Remember in Genesis, God told Abraham, your descendants are going to be so great. They're, they're more than the sand on the seashore. They're more than the stars in the sky. It's going to be amazing. And as Genesis ends and Exodus begins, that's happening. Exodus 1-7. Look at this. If you have your Bible, we'll throw it up on the screen if you don't. Exodus 1-7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. It's happening. However, verse 8, things start to go bad. Verse 8 is going to tell you that a new king came to power that did not know Joseph and he feared the Israelites because it was so big and so strong. His fear was if an enemy came towards them, Israel would rise up un, uh, uh, among them and fight against Egypt and bring them down. So Pharaoh concocted a plan to enslave the Israelites. And that's what we see happening here. In Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2, those two chapters cover 400 years of slavery. 400 years. I know you read those two chapters and you just skim through it in seven and a half minutes. That covers 400 years. Imagine how demoralized and dejected Israelites had to be. Not just day after day or year after year, but generation after generation after generation of slavery. They knew God promised them something, but they weren't seeing it. Anybody ever been there? So here they are. So has God forgotten his promise? Is God unable to keep his promise? Well, thankfully we know the answer to that is no. I'll read for you Genesis chapter 15. Um, it'll be again up on the screen. You don't have to turn back. But when God is calling Abraham to this promise, listen to what he said to them. As he's calling Abraham to this promise, he says in Exodus, uh, Genesis 15, 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God has not forgotten, God has not lost track, and God is not unable to fulfill his promise. He knows exactly what's going on. 
Sin can't stop God. Slavery can't stop God. The free will decisions of other people cannot ultimately stop the great and glorious plan of God. The whole point of the Bible, again, is this. What? God is the hero. And nothing stops God. Not you, not me, nothing. Yes, it seems bad. But even in the moments where it feels the darkest, God's hand of authority and goodness is still on it. So, as they're in slavery, believe it or not, it gets even worse. Pharaoh keeps going with his evil plan and decides that he's now not just going to enslave Israel. He's going to kill every baby boy. Side note, Satan has always tried to kill babies. Like, that's not a new thing. That didn't happen in the early 70s. He's always tried to kill children. Um, We just made it governmentally sanctioned, just like Pharaoh. And so he tries to kill these babies. And that's where we meet Moses. So Moses' mom, it's a crafty little lady, she makes a raft, puts uh, Moses in this raft, and hides him in the Nile so that he won't be killed. In the process of that, through the providence of God, who discovers Moses? The daughter of Pharaoh, right? The guy trying to kill him. The daughter discovers Moses, adopts Moses as her own son, and raises him up. In the home of Pharaoh. However, in all of this, as Moses gets older, becomes an adult, it's clear that he is aware of his connection with the Israelite people. What you see as Moses becomes an adult, one day he's walking through Egypt and he sees one of his Israelite brethren being attacked by an Egyptian slave master. So what does uh, Moses do? He kills the slave master and hides him in the sand. When it becomes obvious and clear that that is discovered and that Pharaoh is wanting to kill Moses, Moses runs away. And he spends 40 more years in the wilderness as a shepherd. So he's in the wilderness shepherding sheep, He's probably thinking his time in Egypt is done. His time with the people of God is done. The people of God in Egypt are still bearing up under this slavery and this oppression. And they're thinking, is God ever going to do anything? Is God remembering us? Is God seeing us? And then we get Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. God appears to Moses in this burning bush. It's this butane bush. It's burning but not burning up. And here's what he says, Exodus 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and Hezites, Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out 
of Egypt. At this point, Moses starts to push back with some serious excuses. Like, I can't, and I don't, and what am I, and who am I, and I can't talk. And God says what? Moses, I am who I am. I am the great I am. I am the eternal sovereign ruler of the universe. I am going before you. I am going to go with you. And you are going to go and lead my people out of slavery. Eventually Moses submits to God and goes. And he goes to Pharaoh with a very simple command of God. What? Let my people go. You can just picture Charleston Heston, right? Big flowing beard flapping in the breeze. Does Pharaoh agree? No. Pharaoh hardens his heart. In fact, it gets so bad, he makes it even worse than the Israelites. And they get mad at Moses. Like, Moses, shut up. What are you doing? You're making it worse for us. In fact, even Moses starts to doubt. Moses goes to God and says, God, what are you doing? You promised that I'd set them free, and now they want to kill me too. So, God brings the plagues. Ten plagues brought on Egypt. Plague number one, water turned into blood. Number two, frogs coming up out of the Nile everywhere. Number three was gnats. Number four, the gnats got on steroids, became flies. Number five, Egyptian livestock dies. Six, boils break out over everyone. Seven, hail falls down from the sky, destroying everything. Eight, locusts come and eat and destroy what the hell didn't destroy. Nine, darkness covers over the land of Egypt for three whole days. Pitch black darkness. Can't see hand in front of your face for three whole days. This eventually leads to the tenth and final plague. God said to Pharaoh, because you have hardened your hearts, because you have refused to let my people go, what? I'm going to kill every firstborn in the land. A couple of things to think about with this tenth plague. One is this. Um, I want you to see that God is faithful to his promise, even his promise of judgment. Right? God said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to judge you if you don't repent and do what I tell you. And he was true to his promise. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 and 30. says, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Can you even imagine what that scene must have been like? In the entire country, in the entire country there wasn't a single house that did not wake up with someone dead inside of it can you even fathom that the bible talks about the cries being so loud you can hear it all over the country this is unbelievable but what this is is an understanding that god is true 
to his promise. Not just the promise to bless, but also the promise to judge. And this is an exceptionally important truth for us to understand. Listen, especially in a society that ignores and even mocks the idea that God will judge you. This is significant. We give very little thoughts to this anymore. God promises to judge, and he stands true to every one of his judgments. And this is not something to be flippant about, right? You don't get a tattoo on your neck that says, only God can judge me. That's stupid. You're right. God is going to judge you. And that should make you wet your pants, not smile. That is terrifying. There's going to come a day where your heart is going to be filleted open before God. He will know every thought, every intention, every desire, every sin you desperately wanted to do, but you didn't because someone might find out. He knows all of it. He sees all of it. And he judges every single one. And that is something that should terrify you. He has promised that he will do this. And he keeps his word. Even if it makes a whole nation cry. For you, listen, God has made a promise by his holy name that he will judge every sin ever committed. And that includes every one of yours. And that is not something to shrug your shoulders about and go eat lunch. Because you may not make it to lunch. Your judgment may come before you ever get there. It matters. Which brings us to the second big thing I want you to get about this. Not only does God promise to judge, he gives a way of freedom from the judgment. He doesn't just say, I'm going to judge you. He says, I'm going to judge you, but I'm going to give a way of forgiveness if you just follow. So what does he tell his people? Take this lamb, this unblemished lamb. I want you to take it. I want you to kill it. And I want you to take its blood. And I want you to put it over your doorpost. And when the death angel comes, he will see the blood on your door. And he will pass over your house. Why it's called the Passover. The death angel sees the blood on the house, the doorpost, and passes over goes to the next. Again, can you imagine what this was like? Can you imagine a little boy or a little girl seeing their father take a lamb, kill it, drain all of its blood into a bowl, take hyssop, dip it in the blood, and start painting the doorpost with it? And this little boy or girl goes up to their father and says, Dad, why are you doing that? And you know what the dad says? I'm doing this so that someone in our house doesn't have to die. This angel died, this, this, this lamb died so that our home can be spared. Come here, come here. Look at your big brother. This lamb was killed so that he wouldn't have to die. A way of escape was given. The people of Israel were not spared this judgment because they were better than Egypt. 
listen, they were not spared because they were better than Egypt. They were spared because they trusted in the sacrifice of the lamb and the blood applied to them. That's why they were spared. They weren't better. They just trusted the sacrifice given to them by God. Do you start to see the dots connect here? And the result of all of this is that the people of Israel are set free. Exodus chapter 12, verse 31. Then he, that's Pharaoh, summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. Bless me also. And God delivered his people. So here's what I want to do. We'll take a few minutes here, and I want to unpack some ideas about this Passover, of how it connects with the bigger story of the Bible, how it connects with you, and what this means for Specifically, what this Passover means, again, for the Bible as a whole and for your life, all right? So I'm going to give you three big ideas. Number one is this. The Passover is ultimately about Jesus. The Passover is not just about Moses or Egypt or Israel or a little lamb or blood over a door. It's ultimately about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So on this night, they celebrate this Passover feast, and then every year since then, the Jewish people celebrate Passover. Then you get to the New Testament. The week that Jesus died, what are they celebrating? Passover. As Jesus is up in that upper room, uh, instituting what we know as the Lord's Supper or Communion. What feast is he celebrating with his disciples? The Passover feast. Literally, Jesus is doing this. He's telling them, I am the sacrifice. I am the Passover lamb. I am the perfect and good and ultimate lamb whose blood is being shed so that as you apply this to the doorpost of your heart, the death angel will pass over you as well. This is for you. Jesus is your Passover lamb. And you are not going to avoid the judgment of God because you try harder and you're better than that other guy. Just like Israel, they had to trust in the sacrifice and the blood for the death angel to pass over, and you must as well. And it's interesting, when you come to this tenth plague, for the first nine plagues, it, it, it fell on Egypt, but not Israel. Israel didn't experience the darkness or the gnats or the frogs or the boils. They didn't experience any of that. They were spared from that. But the tenth plague, the death angel plague, that was on everyone. And if a family in Israel did not apply that blood to the doorpost, the judgment would have hit them as well. Why that tenth plague? Why did it hit everyone? Because death comes for all of us. Right? For the wages of sin is death. You've all fallen short of the glory of God. The consequences for that sin is death. And it is coming. 
Whether you're the king or a slave, whether you're rich or you're poor, it's coming for all of us. And the only way you are spared from the judgment of God is if you trust the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, who was shed for you and had his blood applied to that cross, that as you trust by faith in him and that blood on your behalf, now you are freed from the judgment of God on this day. You can't do this on your own. You need Jesus. Second, God doesn't just deliver you from something. He delivers you to someone. So as you read the book of Exodus, we obviously have a lot of ground to cover, and so we didn't go into detail. But as you read through that, as Moses goes to Pharaoh, what he says specifically is, let my people go, God says, so that they can go into the wilderness and worship me. The point wasn't just that they got out of slavery in Egypt. The point is that they were going out from there to worship and serve and follow God. Right? You're not just being saved from slavery. slavery. You're being slaved, saved to God. And the same is true for you. You're not just being saved from something, you're being saved to someone. You're not just saved from your sin, you're saved to Jesus. Romans 6, 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The point isn't just that you're walking out of sin, the point is that you're walking to Jesus. The reason so many of us have struggled to, listen, you, you tried Christianity and it isn't worth it. The reason is this. You're focusing on not doing the bad thing. Christianity is not about you no longer doing bad things. Christianity is not about you just obeying the rules. It's not about you just no longer doing the bad thing or thinking the bad thing or feeling those bad things. It's about you getting free from that and falling in love with Jesus. You are saved from something, yes, but more importantly, you're saved from that thing and to God. I want to read something from Matthew chapter 12. This won't be on the screen, but Matthew 12, 43 through 45. Jesus, I think, speaks to this a little bit. Matthew 12, 43, he says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. Here's what Jesus is saying. He just described how stupid religion is. How stupid legalism is. And how fruitless it is for you to think you just sitting in this room does something. He says, here's what it's like. So, you got a bad thing in your life. It calls it a spirit here. Let's call it a sin. Alright? So you've got a sin in your life. And you're like, you know what? That sin is bad. It seems to mess things up. It makes my life more difficult. I don't like that anymore. So you know what? I'm not going to do that sin. So I'm going to get that sin out of my life. 
So you get that sin out of your life, or you cast out that demon. So what do you do? You get your, your heart cleaned up now. You put it in order. It's nice and neat. It's like a little house it's describing in your heart. And you got that bad tenant out that won't pay the rent and messes everything up. And you got the house cleaned up. But you don't ever fill it with anything. You don't allow Jesus to come and take up residence. It just stays empty. So that tenant that you kicked out, that sin, after a while it's like, you know what? I don't like living on the street. So he goes back and he sees that your house is swept in order now and nice and neat, but no one's living there. So he goes gets seven of his brothers, even more evil than he is. They come back and you're even more jacked up than before. You're like, I don't get it. I tried this Christianity thing. I went to church. I stopped partying on the weekends. I stopped doing those things. I started doing this. I started going to church. I tried that stuff. Why is it not working? Because you got your house swept and clean, but you never had Jesus actually take up residence. You're not just saved from a thing, you're saved to someone. And if you're not turning to Jesus and trusting in Jesus, it's all worthless. That's why it's called Christianity, not Bradianity. I can't fix me. You can't fix you. You're not just saved from sin. You're saved to God. Israel didn't just get led out of Egypt. They were led out to worship and serve and follow and obey God. And then third, Jesus, our Passover lamb, doesn't just set you free. He sustains you in your freedom. So, this is interesting. I don't know if you've ever caught this before. After they killed the lamb, drained the blood, and painted the doorpost with it, what did they do with the lamb? They ate it. They sat down as a family, prepared this lamb as a feast, and they ate it for the day. Why did they do that? Well, the blood of the lamb was needed for the judgment of God to pass over them. But they had to eat that lamb because that was going to be nourishment for them and strength for them and the calories and fuel they needed to walk out into the wilderness. It wasn't just the blood applied to set them free. The lamb was given to actually be nourishment and strength to walk out that freedom. And the same for us. Many of us have trusted by faith in Jesus to forgive us of our sins. But you're trusting in your own strength to live out that freedom. How foolish would it be for these Israelites to have killed that lamb, painted the doorpost with the blood, been spared from the judgment, have Pharaoh say, fine, get out. But they're so famished and so malnourished and so starved, they got no strength to actually carry out the journey. They needed to feed on the lamb so that they can actually have the strength to walk out the freedom that they're being given. And same for us. John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
The only way you're going to continue to live out this freedom is just like the Israelites had to feed on that lamb to have the nourishment to walk out into this world. You must feed on Christ. Be intimate with Christ. Abide in Christ. It's not just, I trusted Jesus to take away my sin. I'm good now. No, every single day, Feasting on Jesus, nourishing your soul with Jesus, depending on Jesus, abiding in Jesus. I need Jesus. I can't go out there on my own. I can't do this on my own. I need Christ. What the Passover teaches us is the blood sets us free from our slavery, but feasting on the lamb gives us the strength to walk out in that freedom. And the reason that you struggle to walk in freedom might be because you're not nourishing intimately Abiding in Jesus in day-to-day fellowship, relationship, communion with Him. It's about a relationship. Not just praying a prayer and asking Jesus into your heart and getting dunked in a pool. It's about a relationship. Are you walking in intimate relationship with Jesus? I'm going to ask our band to come up. And as they do think again about our big idea for the series. The Bible is not a roadmap for your life. The Bible is a neon sign pointing to Jesus. And as you trust in Him, He changes your life. Again, the big idea of the story of the Bible is that God is the great hero. He is the main character. He is the center focus. It's all about him and the main plot line of the bible is how god is sending a savior to rescue his people from their sin i want you to see the story of the bible as it traces through jesus is the seed that was promised in genesis 3 that's going to crush the head of satan jesus is the offspring promised in genesis 12 that will bless the nations who believe in him. Jesus is the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 who's given as a sacrifice to save the lives of all who trust in him. It's all about Jesus. And as you trust by faith in Christ, as you see Jesus as your Passover lamb, Jesus' blood is what sets you free, not just to walk out of your sin, but to walk in faithfulness with Jesus. And you nourish yourself on Jesus and abide in Jesus and hope in Jesus and trust in Jesus for every day of your life. As you do this over and over and over, your life is changed. This is what we're talking about here with this big idea. As you see Jesus as your greatest treasure, Jesus as your greatest joy, Jesus as the center focus of your life, Jesus as your only hope and strength, as you see Jesus as who he is, now your life becomes changed. And so now when you need peace, yes, you go to the Bible to find Scripture pointing you to peace. And you find that that Scripture is pointing you to Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. And as you need joy, you go to the Scriptures to find Scriptures on joy. And you find that Jesus says that His joy will make be, will be complete in you as you trust in Him. Jesus makes all of this possible. So yes, we go to the Word for these things, but the only way that the Word really takes root and bears out fruit is if we see this is only possible because Jesus Christ is Lord of my life and all belongs to Him. So I want to encourage you to bow your heads for me. And this morning we want to give you some time 
to set your hearts before God. Brothers and sisters, one, have you trusted Jesus as the sacrifice in your place to forgive your sin, to set you free from the judgment of God? The answer to that question is no. Today, today is that day. See that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins. His blood is available to be applied to your heart so that you can be set free, so that the death angel of judgment from God can pass over your life so that you don't have to take your own judgment on yourself. But Jesus absorbs that judgment for you and gives you forgiveness. Today, just right where you are, say, Jesus Christ, I need you. I know that you died in my place for my sin. I know that you were my Passover lamb. Forgive me. Apply your blood to my heart. Jesus, my life now belongs to you. As a follower of Christ, Have you been living your life nourishing on Jesus, abiding in Jesus, trusting in Jesus? It's no longer you who live, but Jesus that lives in you. And the life you do now live in the flesh, you live just by faith in Jesus. Because he's the one who loves you and gave his life for you. Is, is that you? Yes, you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin. Yes, you've done that. Praise God for that. But, but now are you living out that freedom because you're just every day trusting in Christ, trusting in Christ, trusting in Christ. Jesus, I need you. I can't do this apart from you. Feed me, nourish me, strengthen me. I abide in you. Is that, is that how you're living? This is what it means that Jesus is your Passover lamb. Not just that he takes the death angel and passes over you, but now he is the nourishment that you need to walk out that freedom for the rest of your life. Trust by faith in Christ, not just on the day that you ask him to forgive you of your sin, but every day as you're asking him to empower you to live out that freedom for his glory. Father, as we as we worship you here this morning, I, I ask you, God, that you would speak to our hearts, God, everyone who needs to trust by faith in you today for salvation so that the judgment for their sin can be passed over and forgiven. I pray, God, that they would do that. For every believer in this place that is not walking in true faith and trust in you, I pray, God, that you would empower them for that today they would live in that for your glory. Do this in your people. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Let's spend some time worshiping together. This altar is open. You can come forward and pray, or you can stay right where you are and sing and worship. Pray where you are. But take some time here this morning and set your heart before Jesus. I speak the name of Jesus over you. In your hurry, in your sorrow, I will ask my God to move. I speak the name because it's all that I can do.
desperation, I'll seek heaven and pray this for you. I pray for your healing, that circumstances would change. I pray that the fear inside would flee in Jesus' name. I pray that a breakthrough would happen today. God, we just thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you, we trust you. We thank you, God, that you work miracles. God, we, we just saw you in Scripture perform one of the greatest acts of deliverance in history. And God, you still work that miracle in individual lives today. Thank you, Jesus, for that. I pray, God, that you would allow that truth to be just abounding in us for your glory. We love you, God. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, have a seat for me, if you will. Uh, as we 
as we wrap up here today, uh, I want to just encourage you with a couple of things. One, um, if you are a guest with us, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, we'd love to connect with you. Best way you can do that is to simply text the word CONNECT to our number, 910-424-1298. But for everyone, we've got our three big announcements. We want everyone to know what's going on. Number one, Vacation Bible School. That's coming up here in just a couple of weeks. You can sign your kids up by texting VBS to our number, 910-424-1298. Second, graduate recognition today, as in Today, before the sun goes down, today is the last day that you could sign up, you or your child, for graduation recognition. That's going to be today is the last day that you can do that. Tomorrow is no good. Got to do that today, all right? You can do that by texting GRAD to our number as well, 910-424-1298. And then last, our equipped classes. We've been telling you about those for weeks. Uh, that's going through this summer, uh, classes that we provide to help uh, lay out for you some of the big ideas of the Christian faith to help you move forward in your walk with the Lord. You can sign up for any of these classes, Christianity 101, Gentle and Lowly teaches you how to walk out the faith when you don't feel like walking out the faith, and then how to experience new life in Christ. What does Christianity look like, and how do we do this, and what does it mean? You can sign up for all of those, any of those classes um, by texting EQUIP to our number and then clicking on the one that you would like. And then for every other announcement that we have, you can download our app, Southview Baptist Church app, iTunes or Google Play. You can give online or in our giving boxes, whatever works best for you. Um, and you can find everything else that's happening there uh, on the app. I love you guys with all of my heart. Jesus, thank you for your people that you have set free by your blood. I pray, God, that we would walk out that freedom for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Have a great week.